in the thinking of the church today, serving in the world, is we, we def- redefine God in terms of what we think is good instead of what the Bible says, God says. God is a holy God, absolutely holy. That means there is no unrighteousness in Him at all. It's hard for us to picture. One of the ways I used to teach this is, uh, I, I learned a long time ago that um, when we got married, and we, we just went through it a little bit today, that Anita and I have a little different understanding of what warm is in the house and what cold is in the house. I'm freezing and she turns the air conditioner on. That's why we have dual electric heating pads in our bed. So she can be as warm as she wants to be. Even in the room right now, some of you may be feeling cool and some of you may be feeling warm, but there's just one temperature. Because the temperature that you're experiencing is based on what your body feels in in comparison with the actual temperature. Some of you may have a faster metabolism. Some of you may have come in here rushing from work and you're all worked up and you're feeling warm in here. Some of you may have been sitting here for a while. It's maybe because how you're dressed. So we experience the temperature in this room based on our own body's condition, metabolism, nature, whatever you want to describe. So when it feels cold in here, that's not absolutely cold. And I've forgotten what the exact temperature is. I'm sure somebody in here knows. But absolute cold is something like over 600 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. In fact, my father used to have a house in, in um, Florida, and we went to visit the house one time. My grandmother was there. And it was an unusual cold snap in Florida, southern Florida. And, and they, she couldn't get the temperature up. And I said, why? And I found out they didn't have a heating system. They had a heat pump. And what a heat pump does is it pumps the heat into the house from outside even when it's 40 degrees. Because when it's 40 degrees outside, there's still heat in that air. doesn't feel like it to us. But that's because we're measuring the 40 degrees by our 98.6. But absolute cold is when there is no heat in the air and that's something like 600 some degrees below zero Fahrenheit. I went through that exercise to help us understand that most of what we understand about God and most we understand about the world around us is relative to our own experience. So when we talk about God as absolutely holy, we're thinking of holiness in terms of ourselves, people we know, people we've looked up to, but none of them are holy in themselves either. In fact, the Bible says the very best person that's ever lived other than Jesus, his or her holiness was filthy rags compared to God's holiness. Now, I went through that exercise so that we can understand that for God to forgive a sin that we commit against Him is against His holiness and righteousness. It's against His authority for who He is. It's against faith and trust in Him. He deserves our absolute trust in every situation. So anytime we're doubting or unbelief, that is an insult against God's what God is entitled to be. So what do we do? We're hopeless. I remember 
what got what the scripture that led me to realizing I needed a savior was in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Be ye holy, and then he added, as my father, be perfect, as my father is perfect. And the words out of my mouth without thinking of what I was saying was, I can't do that. If that's what you expect, I need somebody to save me. And then I heard my own words and realized why I needed a Savior. So God can't forgive us, even though He wants to, just by saying, I understand that you're human and I'm going to give you another chance. So what's he going to do? God did something that in Satan's mind was absolutely unthinkable. In fact, the, the scripture says in Hebrews, in, a, in Ephesians, that if the, if the rulers of this world had understood what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because it was unthinkable. What God did was in order to, for, to be able to forgive you and me, your sin and my sin had to be paid for. It couldn't be excused. The penalty had to be paid and the wages of sin is death. So here's the problem. In order to forgive us, God would have to kill us. But that's kind of counterproductive because if God kills us and sends us to hell, He can't have us as His children. So God did the thing that only His love would ever think of doing. He became a man and walked among us as a sinful, sinless man. And then at the appointed time, God took the sin of the world and poured it on His sinless Son and then poured out all of His wrath and His judgment and the penalty on that sinless Son. So before God could forgive sins, He had to pay for it. Now, there was sin forgiven in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, it was atoned for. It was covered over. And that was something done in faith, looking forward to when it was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. But in the New Testament, it says our sins weren't atoned for. Our sins were eradicated. They were washed away by the blood of Jesus. I want to call your attention to a scripture that explains this. And this is why I spent the time to break this down. It's in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. To demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, God's, that He might be just. In other words, that He still may be holy, He still may be righteous, even though He's going to forgive us. That He might be holy and just and righteous. And yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So in order for God to justify us and remain just, He had to pay the price for us Himself. So if God has to pay the price in order to forgive sin, and sickness is tied to and comes from sin... That means God does not have the legal right to heal apart from the redemption of the cross. I'm going to say that again because it's foreign to our thinking. We again think God heals because He loves us, He takes pity on us, He's merciful. But if the root of sickness 
is sin. And God removes the fruit of it without taking care of the root of it, then God is not being just because they're connected together. We'll, we'll see that later on. So again, we're coming up, what I'm building up to it is show you that physical healing has to have been paid for in the atonement of what Jesus did on the cross. So now let's begin to look at some scriptures. Let's go to Isaiah 53. We're going to first of all look at it in the New King James. So Isaiah was a, probably the Old Testament prophet that had the clearest vision of who the Messiah was. And, and in chapter 53, he writes this about him. Surely, certainly, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. We just talked about that. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. But that's not literally what Isaiah wrote. Let's go to the, let's go to the Young's literal translation. Surely our sicknesses he bore and our, has borne, and our pains he has carried. And we have esteemed him plague, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was on him. And by his bruise there is healing to us. Now in the New King James, in the King James, the Revised Version, the, words, the word griefs is an Old Testament word that means sickness. And virtually every other time it appears in the Old Testament, it's referring to physical sickness, except in this, in this translation here. The, the word sorrows is likewise a Hebrew word that's translated pains. So here is Young. This is a literal translation of the Old Testament. There is a translation done by a, a Dr. Isaac Lesser, L-E-S-S-E-R, And he was, a, he was a Jew who translated the, he, the, the Old Testament for the Jewish people. And it was, at least at that time, was the official English translation that the Jews read, used. And it says exactly the same thing. So translators, because it, it didn't fit their theology change the meaning of the word to a broader metaphorical term to be sorrows and pains. And, and I'll show you in a minute further evidence of this. The word born there, surely our, sick, our sicknesses, he has born. That is a Hebrew word that means to carry the burden for somebody else. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, part of the ritual, because the Day of Atonement is the Day of Atonement, when on that day the sins of Israel would be paid for 
symbolically. They weren't paid for, but they were paid for symbolically, and God would accept that in faith, looking forward to the Messiah, when he would actually pay for them. And one of the last things that the high priest would do was he would take a goat called the scapegoat, which is where we get the term from, and he would lay his hands on that scapegoat and praying over him, he would transfer to that scapegoat the sins of Israel for that year and then they would send that goat off into the wilderness to bear away their sins. And that's the same Hebrew word that's used for bearing away out of the camp, away from the people, their sins that's used here of what the Messiah was going to do for our sicknesses. So Isaiah is prophesying here that the Messiah, when he comes, remember we read where God said, and I will remove sickness from your midst. And now we're looking at Isaiah's understanding of how God was going to do that, that the Messiah would bear our sicknesses for us. Why? Because they're the fruit Uh, some of the fruit of our sin and he would carry them away for us and notice he did that He he, he was pierced for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace that refers to our soul so here spirit, soul and body our spirit was he was was made, was paid for by the piercing by his piercing of his body and his bruises the chastisement the, the the suffering that he went through was for the peace of our soul and the stripes that he bore for the healing of our bodies i heard one teacher say something which i have not researched but this is a very reliable teacher that in normal crucifixions they didn't have to take him to the whipping post and scourge them. Because in most, many cases, the scourging killed them anyway. So Jesus went to be bruised. He went to be whipped in addition to what the normal crucifixion would have been. Why? So that he could bear the bruises, the chastisement for, for the, the, by his stripes we, could, would be, we would be healed. Now, Just in case we can still debate that, let's go to Matthew chapter 8, because this is the Holy Spirit's looking back at Isaiah and applying it to Jesus' ministry. This follows three incidents of physical healing. In the first five, four verses of Matthew 8, Jesus is coming down from the mountain, having just taught the Sermon on the Mount, and he's approached by a leper. And this leper comes to him and says, I know that you are able to heal me, but I don't know if you're willing to. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He reaches his hand out and touches this man with leprosy, which is a highly contagious skin disease that ate away your body, your flesh, and your bones, and your body. And Jesus says, I will be made whole. That's followed by a centurion coming to him, starting in verse 5, where the centurion comes to him and says to him, my servant is lying at home suffering terribly 
with the palsy and before the, servant, before the, before the centurion, that's a Roman officer, before the Roman officer can tell him what he wants him to do, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And the officer says, no, 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 that's not what I was going to ask you because I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. All you need to do is say a word here and my servant will be healed there because I recognize that like me, you're somebody under authority and therefore you're somebody in authority. And Jesus marveled at his faith and then he sent him home saying, your servant is healed because of what you believed. And then Jesus goes back to, to Peter's house for dinner and his mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And Jesus reaches over and takes her by the hand. The fever leaves her body. She gets up and fixes him dinner. And then people begin to gather around and Jesus spends the evening healing a multitude of people. And then the Holy Spirit ends the story by saying this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So on the cross, Jesus paid for your sickness, my sickness, your sins, and my sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. These are all familiar verses, but I want to approach them from the point of view of the, of the atonement. Who himself bore, there it is, he bore them. He bore them. He bore them. I, I read a, a commentary on healing early this year, and, and, and this, felt this person believed in healing, but what he was saying is that Jesus, Jesus basically paid for it. And by, because he paid for the sin, he paid for our healing, but he didn't, actually, he didn't physically actually bear it. But that's what that word says. Jesus ident- came, God, I don't want to get sidetracked with this. The, the most amazing thing about what God did is he identified with us as human beings. It, it, for God to do that, to step out of heaven, and say, I'll become one of you, fully one of you. So he had to sleep, he had to go to the bathroom. Imagine that, Jesus had to go to the bathroom. He got tired. He would get frustrated. He was fully human, but he was still God. He had the character and nature of God on the inside. And he did that. He became identified with who we are in our suffering. He became identified on the cross with our sin, but he also became identified with our sickness. And he bore them for us. So here Peter's looking back. Isaiah looked forward. Matthew's account was in the, in the ministry, and now Peter's looking back on what happened, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Look at this. That we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness. So there's an exchange that took place. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness. 
So there's another exchange. And by his stripes, by the beating of his body, there is healing to us. Now the word healed there is a Greek word that is translated, I think, 26 times in the New Testament as physical healing. Obviously physical healing. There are only three places where you could argue with that, and that's just the same scripture quoted from the Old Testament. But every other place, it is clearly referring to a physical healing. Now let's look at the whole scope of this. We started by looking at God's, God's promises to Israel. And God's promises, I, I, I care about you. I want to be the one, I want to remove from you the effects of what Satan's done to you through the curse. And part of that is I want, I will remove, I will remove sickness from your midst. He said that three times in different ways to Israel. We saw that King David, looking at the character of God, said, we bless God because of His benefits who forgives all our iniquities and who heals, present death, all of our diseases. We saw Isaiah looking forward prophetically to the Messiah because in the Messiah is the complete fulfillment of every promise God made to Israel. And now we look back from Peter and we see looking back on the cross it's been accomplished. By His stripes you were healed. So what does that have to do with healing? What does that have to do, do with us? Well, several things. And this is very important because in many cases we don't pray the right way. Many times we're praying to get God to do something. God, heal me, heal my friend. God, please heal this person. And we, do, we make the same mistake when we're praying for lost people. Oh, God, please save this person. Please save this person. Please save this person. I have news for you. He did. 2,000 years ago, on that cross, God did everything He can do to save that person in terms of paying forgiving and paying for their sin. So what has to happen? What has to happen? We'll talk about this on a Sunday coming up. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world blinds the unbelieving so that they don't see the glory of God that's in the, light, in the face of Christ. That they don't see the truth. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, open the eyes of their understanding that they would see the hope of your calling for their life that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus prayed over Jerusalem, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send labors into the harvest. God has paid for the sin of the world. For your lost relative, for your nasty neighbor, for whoever you've been praying for, God's already done what he can do to, to forgive them, to pay for it. Prayer has to be for God to open their eyes, to take authority over Satan who's blinding their eyes and ask God to send someone across their path that they will be able to listen to and hear with the truth. So it's already done. But if God's already paid for our sins 
and God's already paid for our sicknesses, then it's just as wrong to ask God to heal us because He's already done it. And so we're praying, begging, calling on God to do something that from His side He has already done. I want to break that down a little bit so you can understand that part of it. And here's where that, the difference. What we were reading in the Old Testament, and I, and I mentioned this a f- few minutes ago, were promises that God made to Israel. A promise is something in the future. I promise I'll come and help you move on Saturday. I promise I'm going to do this. I promise, I'll, I promise I'll come back to church next Sunday. I promise this. I promise this. It's future. It's intention of what I'm going to do. And in the Old Testament, God promised what He would do. But in the Messiah, in Christ, in the, in the, in the cross, God fulfilled His promise. So healing to us is no longer a promise, it's a fact. It's an established fact. The issue isn't getting God to do it, the issue is getting to the place where we can receive it. And that's what I want to talk about for a minute. It's not a promise. It's an accomplished fact from God's side. In Romans chapter 4, one of the great explanations of what, how faith works, Paul is using Abraham as an example. Abraham was the, is called the father of our faith. Abraham, God came to, he was a pagan, they, he worshiped, they worshiped the moon, and God called him and made a promise to him that he would bear a son, and through that son he would be the father of many nations. And when God made the promise to Abram, his name was Abram at the time, he was 75 years old, and his wife was 65. On top of that, she was barren. She had never been able to have children. And God's saying to him and to her, through you, through your wife, you're going to bear a son, and he will be the father of many nations. So they had three things working against them from the natural point of view. His age, her age, and the fact that she was barren. And it took them a while to come around. They, at one point, Abraham laughed, and at another point, Sarah laughed, his wife. And God has to approach him in several different waves. And finally, God approaches him by entering into a blood covenant with him. And up until that time, God's saying, I, I will make you a father of many nations. But in Genesis 17, the, the tense of what God said changes. Because God has now entered into a covenant, and God now says to him, I have made you a father of many nations. While he was still like 
I don't know, 85 years old at the time. And a child didn't show up for another 15 years. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul is using this story as an example of the faith. In fact, he says to follow in the steps of Abraham's faith. He's using this story of Abraham as an example of how we are to exercise our faith for trusting in God, especially to receive the salvation that He's given us. And there's a verse in there, verse 17, where God is saying to Abraham, As for me, I have made you a father of many nations. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who raises the dead and calls things that be not as though they were. In hope against hope, Abraham believed in order that he might become that which God had promised. So God, God had, and from God's side, he had already given this child. Just like from God's side, he's already paid for your sickness. From God's side, he's done it. Abraham's side was to receive it. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he might become. So Abraham's side was he now had to believe that that was his so that it might become a reality in his life. So Abraham never begs God, pleads with God, calls upon God to give him a son. His responsibility is to receive what God's already given. It's kind of like when our children were still at home. They'd come home from school and do their homework and, and a lot of that time I was still practicing law and my office was an hour away from here and, and my wife would hold dinner so we could have a, most of the time so that we could have a meal together. And so uh, she'd put the food on the table and, or, and they would sit down and, and, and they, didn't, they didn't just ask for food. Mom, we're hungry. We would like something to eat. If they did that, she said, well, it's, it's right there. All you have to do is pick up the fork and eat it. But Mom, I'm, I'm hungry. We're going to, you know, I haven't had anything to eat since lunch. And I'm, we're starving. You know, we're young teenagers. We need food, Mom. Please, Mom, you don't know how much we need food. But it's right there. I've already given it to you. And from God's perspective, it's like that. I've already given it to you. It's done. It's, al- it's, already, it's already done. Because you see, what happens is... Well, I don't want to go there. I want to show you an example of this. James chapter 1, verse 6. Now, before this, James is talking about asking God for wisdom. He begins by saying, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. But now he's going to give us a general principle about how to receive something that you've asked for. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now just picture this. Picture a boat out on the water and the wind is howling and the boat's being tossed about. It's unstable. Next verse. Let not that man suppose that he will what? Receive 
anything from the Lord. Let me show you what it does not say. It does not say that if a man's doubting, God won't give him what he's asked. What he's saying is, if you're doubting, you put yourself in a place where it's difficult or impossible to receive because you're unstable. The next He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he's like somebody standing on that boat. Oh, I know. I've seen examples. Uh, um, when, I, where I, when I grew up, my mother has a place on the shore of Maine, a summer place, and they used to have a Coast Guard station there. And I was a boy, I was fascinated, they were, they were wonderful, they'd, they'd bring us in and show us how they were doing things. And one of the training exercises, or the things that they did to practice, is they had a thing called the breacher's buoy. And, and what they would do is they would, this is the way they would transport a, a somebody from one ship to another out on the water. And they would practice how they did that. And I've seen movies, pictures of how they did it. So you have a ship, two ships come side by side, and then they shoot this like a rocket over to the other ship and there's a rope attached to it and they, they fasten that rope on either side and then they put the sailor that they're going to transfer in this basket and they pull, it, they pull him over. But I've seen pictures of them trying to do this when the waves are high, when the wind was high and the ships are going like this and it's very unstable and they're trying to shoot this thing over and the guy's trying to grasp it and keeps dropping it because it's very hard to receive something when you're being tossed around. And that's the image James used here because when we're doubting, our mind is double-minded. We have, it literally means we are of two minds about the same thing. I want to go to a scripture. I didn't give them back there, but I, I, we know it so well. It's Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus is talking about prayer. I think we referred to this last week. Jesus is talking about prayer, and he's just told them this amazing thing. He said, you can speak to a mountain and tell it to be cast into the sea, and as long as you don't doubt in your heart, but believe that what you said will come to pass, you will have what you say. And then he goes to verse 24, which is the principle Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe in the, in the, in the Greek, it's the past tense, that you have received them, and then you will have them. So all this is talking about here is not how to get God to do something, but how to position ourselves to receive what God's already done for us. That is so important. Remember the story of the, of, the, of the man, and I don't have the reference, but the story of the, of the... Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been there with Peter, James, and John. And they've just seen Moses and Elijah and Jesus transfigured into his glorified body talking with them. And Peter wants to build a church up there and, and preserve this experience. And, and then the moment he does, it disappears. And they come down off the mountain and there's a, there's a commotion going on. And the nine disciples that he left down there are all frantic. And there's a man with his son. And man grabs his son and runs over to Jesus and says, You know, I, my son has got, this, is, is got this demon that keeps casting him down into the fire. And, 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 and I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't cast the demon out. 
And we've talked about this before. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And then in one of the versions, the man says, if you can, would you have mercy on us? And Jesus' answer is, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. So this man did what we often do. He tried to shift the responsibility to Jesus. If you're able to do something, please have mercy on me. And Jesus saying, the issue isn't what I can do. It's already done. The issue is what are you able to believe? What are you able to receive? So this shifts our focus from begging God, pleading God, hoping God. If God has already established, if God's already done it, we know it's His will. It's not just His will, it's done. We just have to position ourselves to receive it. Now, that can be challenging for people. Because human nature is, and there's nobody in this room, I know it's nobody watching online, nobody that goes to Faith Christian Center would ever do this, but sometimes we like to be able to blame God for why something didn't work. And not accept any responsibility ourselves. Now sometimes there are circumstances we, have no, we don't understand. But it's never God. And once you understand God's already given it, He's already done it. That means there are things we may need to learn. Where something didn't work, maybe there's something we didn't understand. Maybe there was doubt. We don't know. And unless God shows us, we don't know the answer. But it's never God, because God's already, God's, already, God's already done it. Now, here's another result of this, and then we'll, we'll bring this to an early close. If, if Jesus bore this for us, it's no longer ours. One of the things Christians struggle with in, 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 in just being happy, joyous Christians is we struggle with whether or not we're good enough, whether or not we're living up to what God requires us, whether or not you know, God really loves us. When the scriptures say that God took Jesus' righteousness and gave it to you if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have His righteousness because you're in Him. That you are as righteous, if you're a Christian, you are as righteous right now as Jesus is. Not because you earned it, not because of anything you did, but because you received the one who did it for you. So, because He bore the consequences of your sin, you don't have to bear them. But that means, in the same token, if He bore your sicknesses and carried your diseases, that means you don't have to bear those either. That means Satan... Well, I'll give you another... In Romans chapter 6... Verse 14. Paul here is talking about, uh, he's just finished chapter 4, which we just talked about, about this this grace is received by faith. Chapter 5, he goes on and explains how wonderful this is, and this means we have peace with God. 
And then in chapter 6, by beginning, but you know, some people say, well, if, if grace abounds and if sin abounds, then grace does much more abound. Then let us sin even more so that grace will abound even more. And he says, don't ever think that way. You don't understand it. He talks about how we've been given victory over sin. So because Christ bore our sins for us, Paul is saying, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Because he bore it, see, before he bore your sin, we were all slaves to sin. But once he bore it for us, we're no longer, that's what grace does, we no longer, it no longer has dominion over us. Now, we may be giving it dominion, we may be surrendering it dominion because we don't know we have dominion over it, or because we don't want to exercise dominion over it, but he's given you dominion over sin because he paid the price for it and he bore it for you. But that must also mean that if sin no longer has dominion over me because he bore that sin for me, if he bore sickness for me, that must mean that sickness no longer has dominion over me. So that means I have the ability, I have the right because I'm in Christ, I have the right because I've been given his name to exercise his authority over those symptoms when they come against us because it does not have a right to be in your body. Now, in order to walk in this, we have to renew our mind because this way of thinking is not the way we were raised. This way of thinking is not the way our culture functions and it's not the way 90% of the church functions because first of all we believe sickness and disease is just a normal part of life and we just have to put up with it. That's what we've got wonderful doctors for and that's why we trust and rely upon them. That's the way the world thinks and that's the way the church thinks. And so in order to walk in what the Word tells us, we have to put some effort into renewing our minds, and that comes by changing how you think so that you begin to think in line with what God's Word says and not with the way we've been trained to think all the rest of our lives. In a few weeks, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to start teaching on Wednesday nights a course I used to teach in the school of ministry called Renewing the Mind. It was that and Blood Covenant were the two most popular courses that we had, and they were life-changing courses. So I'm going to do it, and this is a good idea why. Because in order to receive the things that we're talking about, we can't just come to church and say, yeah, that's neat, I never thought of that before, and we'll walk out of here because the patterns of our thinking haven't changed. When I was in law school, the good law schools don't teach you the law. They teach you how to think differently so that you can take a set of situations, circumstances, and you can begin to put them into the order that's necessary to argue a case before a judge. So a client would come in and talk to me, and they would tell me, so-and-so did this to me, this terrible thing, they did this, they did that, they did this. And while I'm listening to them, 
I'm trying to identify the five elements that are going to have to be proven to that judge in order for this client to recover. I got another example that may be able to relate even more. When I go to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks or somewhere, it's real easy. I want a medium black coffee. My philosophy, that's how God made it. That's how I'm going to drink it. My wife has a different approach. That's better now. But she used to go through grande, mocha, blah, 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 you know, the whole list of things. And I once asked, I once asked one of these baristas, I guess they're called, how do you remember all that? Because she may say it one way, somebody else comes in and says it. How do you, they didn't write it down. How do you remember all that? It's because we're trained to listen to it in an order. I don't remember quite what it was. It was like the first thing we're listening to is it hot or cold? What's the size? And then they're trained, no matter what you say, to find these four or five things so that they can remember it because they've memorized the order. That's what renewing the mind is. So that no matter what you experience, no matter what comes against you, you've trained your mind to respond according to how God thinks about it, not according to the way you were raised, according to the way your family thinks about it, not according to the way the people in church think about it, and certainly not according to the way the world thinks about it. So some of the things that we've introduced to you in this series, certainly some of the things that we've talked to you about tonight, are going to require you to change how you think. So take these notes. You can, I think they're online. If not, we'll put them online. Take these scriptures and just begin to... Some, some of these things I've taught you tonight have come because I've spoken these scriptures over and over and over again. I've meditated on them. I've put them together in certain orders and then they begin to connect dots in my mind and I begin to see how one thing connects to another and then the pictures begin to form in my mind and now I begin to see a greater depth to this because now it's beginning to become a part of me. Most of the time, the way we read scriptures and talk about scriptures is the same way you wine testers and food testers taste food. They put it in their mouth, they run it around in their, over their tongue to taste certain areas of their tongue, and then they spit it back out and they said, that was good, that was not good. But that food never got in them and became a part of them, and so that food never contributed to their health and their nutritional well-being. In order for that food to become to do any, you any good, it has to get in you and it has to become digested and it has to become part of you. And that's true with God's Word. It's not enough to know it in your mind. It's not enough to memorize it. It's not enough to be able to speak. I've got some of these scriptures, I've spent them so many times, I can say them off the top of my head while I'm thinking of something else. That's great, that's in my head but it's only what gets down in my heart that begins to produce results. Jesus said, if you will believe and not doubt in your heart, you will have what you say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your word that instructs us, that teaches us. Father, we've heard some things tonight that may expand our thinking. It may challenge some of our thinking. 
I first of all pray, Lord, that nobody heard anything tonight and walks away feeling guilty or condemned because somehow they feel that they weren't enough or didn't do enough. You're a loving, gracious, kind Father. And because of that, you teach us, you train us so that we will grow up and we mature and we can take our place that you've called us and for us to take. And so help us to receive and to understand what we've heard tonight. To do that, we trust in the Holy Spirit to work in our minds and our hearts and bring back to our remembrance the things that we've heard. Father, I believe with all my heart we are in a critical time where the message of the full gospel is going to become more and more important in the country we live in and the times we live in. We're grateful that we appear to be coming out of this pandemic, but we don't know what lies ahead. We do know this, Lord. We were very much dependent on the answers that the world could come up with, and we didn't rely very much on the answers that you offered to us. Help us to grow and to learn that you indeed are our physician. You indeed are our healer, and you have healed us already. Help us to receive these things, and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.